Hi, I'm Jay Cohen, and I pray to lose 20 pounds and that my family reunites. Hi there, it's Jess and JC. Well, it's just Jess, but JC's my co-host. This is Pray For Us, a podcast about practicing an ancient religion in the modern day. We're talking about how we observe Judaism and other religions when it comes to holidays, relationships, food, and everything in between. Today, we're talking to Jake Cohen. Jake is a food writer, recipe developer, and cookbook author. Jake, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here with us. Hi. Very excited to be here. Always excited to talk about all things Jewish. I'm living for this energy this morning. I feel like we're all like a little bit tired, (laughs) but like ready to rumble. Let's go. Let's go. Can you tell us a little bit about where you were from and like what your childhood was in terms of Judaism? Yeah. Um, Like, did you have a mitzvah? Did you go to summer camp? Loaded question. Oh, my God. Um, No, no. I mean, it's funny because I will say I grew up very secular. I grew up in Queens um, in New York, and it was something where I went to Hebrew school. My sister and I both went to Hebrew school twice a week. Um, We went to Jewish day camp in the summer. But in terms of school school, I was part of the magnet program in New York City public schools. So I had the same class of kids from kindergarten until I moved out to Long Island right before high school. And it was a class that was incredibly diverse in like kind of the grand scheme. But um, I was one of two Jewish kids. The majority of the class was Asian representing everywhere from China, Japan, Korea, and it definitely was such a beautiful representation and, and upbringing to be exposed to so many different cuisines and flavors and traditions. But it wasn't until I went out to Long Island, which was funny because I moved out to Long Island right before like bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah season. <laughs> and so it was like towards the end of middle school where I was all of a sudden in a environment that was predominantly Jewish and very much so that like caricature of what a Long Island Jewish girl or boy is like. So that kind of followed me, I guess, until all of the bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs were over. I did a B'nai mitzvah with my sister. And then we were done. I was like, done with Judaism. We'll see you at the high holidays. That's it. Um, And that's kind of how it was into my adulthood. And it wasn't until I was an adult and met my husband. And it was this, I mean, we'll go in deeper eventually about about the the story, but like, I'm Ashkenazi. He is an Iraqi Persian Jew. And he he grew up with even less Judaism, like very secular, like wasn't bar mitzvahed. And it was one of those things that we started kind of exploring because our definitions of Judaism or Jewish food were very different. He had never had babka before. He had never had gefilte fish or matzo ball soup. Likewise, I'd never had kubba, I never had tadik, I never had all these dishes that are so integral to Jewish communities that just aren't like mine and and I would assume yours as well. So it it just became this exploration of like, what does it mean to be Jewish? What is our narrative as a young Jewish couple? And that's actually when we started hosting Shabbat because we weren't really like 
vibing with a lot of the synagogues we were checking out and just the idea of like Friday night services. It, it just wasn't meshing with us in the same way that when we started hosting Shabbat, it just clicked. And that's how we've pretty much defined our Jewish ritual was through hosting Shabbat and something that neither of us grew up with. We didn't grow up hosting, uh, right. keeping Shabbat. I also did not grow up keeping Shabbat. I am from New York. I'm not from Long Island, but I'm from Westchester. So it's like the same, but like a little bit less aggressive. I do have yeah. to ask what part of Long Island you moved to just so we can like paint a picture. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so we can do it. So I, I moved out to Melville, Dick okay. Hills. I was a half Hollow Hills boy. I'm sure plenty of people <laughs> I know. know. It. <laughs> you know, yes. And yeah, it, it follows me. I would say that is one of my favorite things. Someone posted, I, I do like these, whenever I get high, I do these AMAs on my Instagram mm-hmm. where I just, and I just <laughs> typically all the responses are just like selfies of my nostrils um, with the answer. I know, I've seen them. And I love it. Give beautiful nostrils, beautiful, exactly. A plus. <laughs> so, so what do I, what do I think, one of the things that I get asked is like, oh, what's your favorite part about being Jewish? And my, my favorite response is always the geography because that concept yes. of an immediate connection with someone just based on the fact that you have this common piece of identity that is probably going to connect you with some person yep. or family member or a million one other things. And and it's magical in the tri-state area oh, yeah. because the Jewish community is so concentrated. But it's also, it's just, it's such a magical idea because we make up 0.2% of the world's population. We are such a tiny minuscule group of people so that the fact that these happen on these things happen on like so many occurrences. Yeah. It's that to me is like magical. It's incredible because people always say like it's a small world, and I always say no, it's a small community because like yeah, if you're going mm. to like if you're that. going to that. the Four Seasons in Bangkok and you run into you know your Jewish friend from high school, it's like yeah, it's not that you are in Bangkok; it's because you were at the Four Seasons in Bangkok. Like that's why. Yes. <laughs> This reference seems very well. Specific. It literally happened. Did it happen? Yeah, it happened. Yeah, and, um, and unfortunately, this is like, and I feel like this is all fuel for the alt right and the, all the conspiracy theories about Jews controlling everything. I know it was like, honestly like a horrible reference, but you know, <laughs> it is what it is. It's out there. There you go. I'm from Arizona, and I am getting the more and more we talk to people, I'm kind of getting jealous that I'm not from the East Coast because I feel like the Jewish community there is so much tighter than it is in Phoenix, for sure. Like, I just can't imagine growing up in a place where the majority of the people are Jewish or where that's such a big part of life and culture, because it was kind of something that was sectioned off in my childhood that I sort of had to, like, compartmentalize or I chose to to compartmentalize. I think that's one of the beautiful things about growing up in this area. And there are, I mean, there are a lot of cons, too. (laughs) You look at at a lot, a lot of them. But... (laughs) What comes up a lot in the sense of my personal family and when I met my husband, who like in a very strange, I mean, his parents who are neither of them are Swiss, but they met when they were living in Switzerland. That's where they had him and his sister and they grew up there and then came, moved to Florida when he was like seven. So he grew up in Florida, but in Gainesville, not like Mm -hmm. Miami or Boca and truly had no kind of connection to what the American caricature of Jewish culture is. And that is something where we benefit from that idea of people have this point of reference, because I always say, like, my family falls somewhere in between, like, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and Seinfeld, kind of like (laughs) family Mishigas. And 
people can understand that because it really is like a common occurrence. And my husband's brother, who also married an Ashkenazi girl from New York, went to Horace Mann. All of the the all of the 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 kind of quintessential things. So like when we blend, like we just we understand each other. We speak a similar language. There's a certain understanding in the way that we interact with family um, and hospitality. And just there's so many things that I just know we think about on the same way just because of where we come from. And that's kind of nice. And, and it's also kind of nice to have the common things of like, oh, where are they getting married? Oh, Cipriani? Of course they're getting married <laughs> Cipriani. Like all that stuff. <laughs> So, got to ask, how did you meet your husband and when did that happen? We met just about six years ago on Hinge. Oh, mazel. Yeah, a Hinge success story. And oh we were, neither of us were in town and it was through a our Hinge, because this was like in the first iteration of Hinge in which you had to have a mutual mm-hmm. through Facebook. And that's how you got connected. And neither of us had actually ever met this guy, <laughs> but we were friend, Facebook friends because both of, he had friends that had both tried to set us up with him. And in the end, it's like now we've become him and his boyfriend are some of our best friends. I started actually later on into when we were dating when we started hosting Shabbat, I was like, you have to come over with your boyfriend when I found out he lived in New York. And that was the beginning. And we've been so close ever since. I love it. Did you always feel like you wanted to date Jewish people and eventually end up with a Jewish partner? No. That was, that wasn't even like a, no, I mean, I, the, the long-term relationship yeah. before I met Alex, he was not Jewish and it was one of those things that we met. Obviously I'm a Cohen and he's a Shapiro. So it was pretty obvious <laughs> what I was getting into. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, it's like, I think I personally think that we, as a community need to move away from like a lot of that kind of indoctrination that we get from our parents and grandparents that you have to marry a Jew. Mm-hmm. And I think it's more important that you are exploring culture, preserving family histories and recipes and and exploring your own personal connection to Judaism and how you're going to pass that on to your kids, then focus on the, the nuance of just like, you need to find someone who's Jewish. Because I know plenty of people who have found Jewish partners and neither of them have a, a true connection to Judaism that they really should be exploring. Totally I want to like that. save that entire soundbite and just like play it on repeat to anyone who asks me if I'm upset that I'm not <laughs> dating a Jewish guy because you just put it so perfectly. Um, so thank you. But let's go. Let's go into your your cooking. Uh, yeah, let's who talk taught about you food. how to cook? Are you? We got to talk about food. I just uh, I'm so happy you're here. We love food so much. Let's start from the beginning. Like, how did this happen for you? Yeah. I mean, the funny thing is, is like everyone always comes to have these stories of like their mother being this incredible cooker and growing up with homemade dinner. My mother is not very good. (laughs) There are things that she makes the best latkes. I will say that's one of the things that comes up all the time. It's like her latkes are the best. She's a few things that she makes really, really, really well. In general, she's fine. I, I grew up with I mean I grew up with two working parents that worked a lot. So a lot of it was like TV dinners at home and and just spending for ourselves. And it was not something that I really explored until later. And yes, I grew up with like my grandmother, incredible cook. And she would throw these feasts when we would go and stay with her. And like, I mean, we grew up in Bayside. She lived in Forest Hills. We'd go spend weekends and it would just be like just the two of us and her and the spread of every type of lamb chops and pasta and green beans and all just everything it was enough food for easily like six or eight people. 
And then the high holidays, like my aunt made the best brisket and would always like be crying and stressing. But every <laughs> like she made the same shit every year and still it would stress her out. <laughs> so relatable. Um, yeah. But, but it wasn't until high school where it actually, I started exploring food. I started really loving it. I was always, I was obsessed with the Food Network. I was obsessed with like, Julie and Julia had just come out. It was like this, this real like awakening in the sense of I had liked cooking and I liked food, but I never really explored what that looked like in terms of the power of it. And I wasn't a very like popular kid. I was also very heavy in high school. And it was one of those things that I actually started throwing dinner parties. And it was a way to connect with people. It was a way that I started making more friends. It was this way of me just really putting myself out there more so than I ever had before. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I really found rewarding. And from there, I like, my dad worked in TV and film and knew a food stylist and connected us. And I started assisting her on some shoots. And I was like, okay, let's do this. So I went to the Culinary Institute of America. It was the only college I applied to. And I was ready to just put my head down. From I graduated, I worked at Danielle and ABC Kitchen here in Manhattan, which was Insane. incredible. I knew yeah. very quickly that restaurant life was not for me because I just didn't want to, not because, I mean, obviously it's stressful and it's a lot of work mm-hmm. and it's hard, but also just something that like, what's the end goal? And my end goal, I never wanted my end goal to be owning a restaurant. Mm-hmm. So I transitioned to media and I started working in the test kitchen at Suburban Magazine and just kept on fighting for bylines and promotions and all that stuff. And from there, I went to Tasting Table, which is a digital food uh, company, rest in peace. And then I went to Time Out New York as their food critic, which was wild and something unlike I had That's ever done. That's a dream. And then I was the editorial director for Feed Feed for the last two years, which was a lot of fun to kind of jump back and forth from print to digital, print to digital, now with like a social focus. And then I left Feed Feed and I have a new project that everyone will hear more about in, in early next year. That's going to be very exciting and be the, the new future of food media. And then just working on, I'm just wrapping my book. What made you decide to have Judaism be such a big part of the food that you make? Because you could have chosen to kind of differentiate yourself from that, but it is very influential when you look at your recipes and your social media. Can you explain that a little? Yeah. I mean, I think it comes down to, and I write about this in, in my upcoming cookbook about the dish. Like there was this one dish, my nannies, so my great grandmother's apple cake, which my aunt Susie makes for every Rosh Hashanah. And it was the first time I was able to, I, I mean, I really wanted to just like pitch myself as much as possible uh, when it came to breaking into food media. And when I was at Sever, like I wanted to get recipes and opportunities to put myself out there. And I never really thought of myself as focusing on Jewish food. I never really thought of that. But it just came to fruition because it was the high holidays. I had the opportunity to write about like, well, like, do you have any family recipes? And I'm like, yeah, like this one stood out to me. And the more I explored it, the more I realized that this was so ingrained in my upbringing and in, in family history and the food ways that influenced the way I cook and the foods that I ate growing up. And, and it became this much deeper connection, much deeper story that, that came across to my editor in the sense of, of 
This isn't just me saying like, oh, I like this. It tastes good. It's mm-hmm. This is a, a, a dish that has traveled through countries, mm-hmm. through war, through genocide. Like this is, this is meteor. And I think I really decided to lean into the fact of like, why not or, or why hold myself back from exploring personal identity and my family history when I can marry that to what I love to do. And there was something that was just also much more rewarding about helping fine tune and adapt a, a family recipe mm-hmm. for the masses. And even to this day, I, every Rosh Hashanah, when I see people making Jake's nanny's apple cake, like that's pretty fucking cool. And it went from there. I think that when I met my husband, it became this really interesting way that I was able to bond with his family by going into the kitchen with his mother and aunts to to learn a lot of his favorite dishes that he grew up eating. And in doing so, I've also become this like ambassador for the Ashkenazi community in the sense of we live, like we talked about earlier, the, the, the Ashkenormative world of American Jewry, you have this idea that being Jewish or Jewish food is bagels and lox and matzo ball soup and Ashkenazi food, which is not true. That is a sect of Jewish food. That is a sect of the Jewish community. For me to be able to represent what that looks like to really celebrate Jewish food from other communities and then also start to bridge that gap of how that can cross over that's just been exciting. That's what excites me. I think that I think that it comes down to those big things. And then the other thing, which was, I really leaned into it. I would say like before it was just like little tidbits here and there of, of recipes and, and stories around Jewish holidays. It was Shabbat that really kind of pushed me to that next level of like, this is what I'm doing. This is what my food is representative of. And that was because Shabbat became this this giant representation of what hospitality meant to me. Because this was the dinner party I was throwing every week and inviting people over and cooking for 10 people and serving them and, and coordinating everything from wine to dessert to bread to yeah. folding the napkins. Like this was truly the closest thing I had to a dinner service at a restaurant was hosting people for Shabbat. And that doesn't mean I always serve Jewish food. Right. doesn't mean I always serve kosher food. I'm not kosher. I think the majority of people that you talk to, uh, especially in a podcast that is foc- focusing on modern Judaism, kashrut law does not necessarily overlap with everyone's uh, identity. And if some type of kosher uh, identity does, you have like the million and one iterations of what it means to be kosher style. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, we're kosher at home, but we can eat outside. Well, if it's chopped up and stuffed into dumplings, then shrimp's okay. Like there are so (laughs) many different rules. Oh, I won't eat pork, but bacon, that's all right. I I mean, good prosciutto once in a while, but no pork chops. Like there's a million and one things that people make as their rules to to justify. What's their loophole Mm -hmm. for being kosher? I have none because I am 0% kosher, but I think that's the fun. It's also part of the the drama. People get very angry on Instagram when I post things like when I do Shabbat cheese boards that have cheese, dairy and meat. Do they and really get upset about oh that? Oh my God. They're saying, how dare you say that this is for Shabbat? You're like, you're, they, 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 they threaten me. They say I'm not Jewish. They, they are a million one things that is so inherently un-Jewish 
to be passing judgment, to be mm-hmm. shaming other there people. It, it, when it comes down to it, it's, I believe in, I think core Jewish values are something that are so important and are so lost with so much of the community. Mm-hmm. And I see it within my own family. So many people, especially when we, I mean, I don't think this is a, a podcast about politics, but like <laughs> when you start to talk about them, like family politics and fighting with them and some of the things they say, and I have to remind them of the concept of tikkun alum and the fact of that they are mm-hmm. voting with their their wallets mm-hmm. and not with true Jewish values. There's nothing more Jewish to me than fighting with your family. So I, I support yes. that. I think it's be, good to be <laughs> able to disagree. But I did want to ask you about how you deal with trolls on Instagram because you're very, you put a lot of yourself out there and people can be really savage in the comments section. What, how, I would just like, Stop. Yeah. Like, I'd be like, okay, I'm just going to like close down my Instagram. <laughs> you guys are right. It's funny because I think there was a time in which I would, I was trying to have a very curated, like never rock the boat life. And I think part of putting yourself out there is understanding that like you're doing that and I'm not going to concede to anyone not agreeing or not enjoying what they see. Like that's, that's a them problem. So what happens is it used to be that, oh, ignore them. No, I don't ignore them. I engage with them because at the end of the day, here's the deal. People think of Instagram or they think of like your profile. They think all this stuff. And they think the dynamics are like a restaurant that I am the, the, the chef owner of this restaurant and they are the customer and I work for them. They are doing their thing and, and I am in debt to them and have to, I don't know, serve them. That's not the case. No. This is like a Shabbat dinner table. They are guests. I'm extending hospitality and there has to be a level of respect given back to me. You don't give me that respect. Guess what? I remove you as a follower. Guess what? I shame you in in DMs or publicly in the comments. I have told people all the time in DMs, especially because I am very active politically in my stories, at least. I have no problem telling people off all the time. The fact is you come into, you come, you engage with me in my DMs and try to, to shame me for my views and then get upset when I engage with you, like, you ask for it. Yeah. So I, I think that the, we have to normalize that kind of dynamic in the sense of people, people, if you don't engage, if you don't, like, call people out on that, then all you're doing is encouraging more troll culture because people think they could just hide behind a DM. Yep. Mm-hmm. I also, it makes absolutely no sense to me why people bother following other people that they don't agree with or don't support just to shame them or tell them. them. It's like, just unfollow them or mute them. Just, it doesn't matter. Like live your own life. Jeez. It's really, it it makes no sense to me. Um, But I do, I do want to go back to some of what you were saying about Jewish recipes and Jewish cooking, because I, I find it so fascinating that I can be sitting with my family eating noodle kugel for Rosh Hashanah. And then I travel across the country to California and I eat with my friend's family and guess what? They have the same exact recipe for noodle kugel. How, how does that happen? What are your, what are your thoughts on those like traditional core foods? Do you try to elevate those foods when you make them for the high holidays? I just, I find it so incredible that across the country we could have, and across the world, I'm sure have like the exact same recipes for these occurrences. Yeah. I mean, I think it comes down to the fact that like we're a small community. So a lot of these dishes that truly have their their roots in the sense of Ashkenazi food in Eastern Europe or in the sense of, of Mizrahic food across the Middle East or Sephardic food across North Africa, you have these dishes that come to America and are preserved pretty much as they were when they arrived. And you'll have instances of then seeing them adapt to 
your surroundings, which is when you start to see like the Jews that ended up in Mexico add a lot of like jalapeno to their matzo ball soup. Or uh, in Canada, you see Jews that use maple syrup instead of honey for their challah. Or in um, the Midwest, you see people with their brisket recipes start to use ketchup. Um, <laughs> yeah. And th- there's so many ways in which you have different tweaks on original recipes. And we start to see that that evolution of Jewish food. And that's one of the beautiful things about Jewish food is that everyone wants a, um, everyone wants an origin story these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone wants like one clear thing. Like this is from this town. This is who invented it. Blah, 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 blah. We're talking about foods that predate modern borders. So like something that you would call Polish today was then Russia uh, then and or Lithuania then at the same time. There are so many different variations on that. And why I think it's very charged and oftentimes like there is a hint of anti-Semitism when people get upset about foods and and the stories of, of foods being Jewish. There are foods that are Jewish, that Jews invented them. Then there are foods that are representative of communities that Jews were welcomed and part of. Uh, you see this a lot of times in, in a lot of the, the food of the Levant that truly, truly dates current borders. It was, there were empires. So the concept of hummus belonging to one specific country is asinine. But <laughs> the idea is, is so many of those dishes then became intertwined in Jewish ritual. They became intertwined in Shabbat meals. They became intertwined in high holiday feasts. And then Jews got kicked out of the country and exiled. So they brought a lot of those traditions with them. And wherever they settled next, it began to blend with whatever that current culture is. Mm -hmm. So that happened in my husband's family. They're Iraqi. The Jews were kicked out of Iraq in 1950. They went to Iran. So she makes so many Persian dishes with Iraqi spices. And likewise, so many Iraqi dishes with Persian spices or variations. And she lived in Turkey for a bit. So there's there's Turkish influence. Y- you see this movement of people and the food ways that travel with these dishes that ended up in America are this mashup of all these different countries and, and pretty much stories of, of Jewish exile. And the idea of what that looks like in a current like environment, it's so unique to our experience. That being said, there are just as incredible diaspora cuisines and dishes across the world, whether that be like the the, the travel of a lot of Asian communities and or African communities. And I think there's something really incredible about exploring what that looks like and what that means and how a dish that you have today, how it came to be. The concept of a bagel, like we, what we know as a bagel what we love as a bagel is not a traditional bagel. Bagels are Jewish. Bagels came to New York, but like Russ and Daughters is probably the close, or Sedell's is probably the closest thing that makes a real traditional bagel. Bagels are these fucking big ass pillows that we can now like sleep on <laughs> when they didn't originate that size. They didn't originate that, 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 they definitely didn't originate rainbow with <laughs> a lot of the toppings or, or flavorings that we did. And but but likewise, just because it didn't originate that way does not mean that that's not now this new iteration of what Jewish right. food means. That's what Israeli food is. Israeli food is this conglomerate of dishes and ingredients from Jews across the diaspora. You have Ashkenazi Jews bringing in their influence. You have the, the concept of, of sabich is one of my favorite examples of it because it's a mashup of the 
traditional Iraqi Shabbat breakfast, a fried eggplant with hard-boiled eggs and chopped salad. I want that. And then it gets stuffed into a pita in Israel, and it combines amba, which is this Iraqi Jewish condiment created literally by one. This is one of those examples where, like, when someone tries to fight you that it's not Jewish. Like, amba (laughs) can be traced back to, like, one Jewish family. But it's an example of the Jewish kind of role in the spice trade with India. And those are what you would call Baghdadi Jews, where these Jews that split their time or, or, or I don't know the exact like nuance of where they, they were living, but they were back and forth between Baghdad and India with the spice trade. And that's where you see a lot of influence with mango pickles, with tamarind, with uh, the concept of Iraqi curries mm. um, are all influenced by that. And likewise, like Indian food, you think of Jalebi, which is this incredible like, fry dough that's then mm-hmm. soaked in, oh, in yes. a, like a saffron syrup. That, a lot of people say, actually originated in the Middle East. And in the same way of, of that, they each now have their own versions of it. But more importantly, who cares? They're all integral to everyone's right. cuisine. Yeah. Like, let's just celebrate food. Let's just love food. Um, I think with the concept of Jewish food, we love we love these foodway stories because they help tell us about our people mm-hmm. and our heritage. And so much of that has been hidden and like, I didn't grow up knowing a lot of it. You just are exposed to some. But it, honestly, it's only because I work in food and I want to explore this because this is part of my job that I've gotten all of these stories and I have to stop and talk to my family and my husband's family and be like, where is this from? Why do you do it this way? How did this originate? His mom makes toddy, crispy Persian rice. Everyone loves it. So good. While traditionally, like, she tops hers with fried pine nuts and currants. That's not Persian. That is a very Arabic style right. of doing that. That's something that I would never know. I would never know to ask. I would just think like, oh, this is how it is. But that's not the case. And the more you learn, the more you understand the nuances and the more you understand like how there's so many instances in which families do things the same, but there's so many instances where families do things different. Yeah. Right. And that then becomes this equally important conversation. And a lot of times it just comes down to one of your great-great-grandmothers or grandfather's personal taste preference, and that just got passed on, and that's just the way things are now. It's funny you mentioned that I've been cooking a lot more like everyone else in the world as I've been at home, and I've been looking at a lot of my family recipes, and my bubby was an amazing cook, and I'm sort of like looking at them with a closer eye, and she cooked with matzo meal and margarine and like any recipe that she could, even like regular brownies, she was like, use matzo meal. I'm like, who does that? I don't know that I would necessarily do that, but I do love the story that it tells and that it ties me to her. And then I can put my own twist on things to kind of cater to my preferences. So how do you come up with, I mean, I feel like your recipes are so inventive and so like innovative. How do you come up with these ideas? I mean, a lot of it is just drawing inspiration from those types of recipes, Mm -hmm. from people's grandmothers, from my family, uh, and starting to understand what is the core of what it's doing? What are the flavor profiles and how can I then switch it up? Mm -hmm. Uh, A perfect example of like, for example, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Was your bubby kosher? Yes. Oh. That's why she uses uses margarine. So the reason that she used margarine is because she was making parv desserts. That's a perfect example. If you start to see these things and you start to realize, all right, great. Well, that's the reason she did it this way. This is the reason I now can like use butter or use brown butter yeah. and do the same kind of thing and make it modern and 
a little tastier. That being said, or explore like what that looks like of not margarine, but we're going to make it into olive oil brownies. Mm -hmm. And they're still going to be parv, but they're also still going to be modern and inventive. So you can explore that. A lot of the, the when I was learning like kuppa, the, these classic Iraqi Jewish dumplings mm-hmm. that are then stewed in this sweet and sour beef broth. And they're so good and so difficult to make. And his family's divided because some people use semolina, some people hand grind rice. And it was this whole thing because when I was making it with his aunt, she was going through all these steps of she washes her rice, and then she dries her rice, and then she hand grinds her rice and all these things. And, and eventually I came to the realization that a lot of these steps came from the fact that when they learned these dishes, this was in Iran where you had to go through and they actually had typically servants or maids or cooks in the, in the home that would go through the rice grain by grain because oh you would God. get rice with rocks and pebbles and twigs in it. And you had to do that to make sure that you were not going to be grinding up rocks into your kubba. In today's world, the chances of that are, are slim to none. So that's a step that I'm able to remove. Yeah. Right. And I, I think that's the, the true fun is understanding like what are the reasonings behind it and then how do you get to modernize it? I mean, we have technology and, and all these beautiful things that can help people make things easier and faster. And in the same way that I would say our parents' generation was the one that really got exposed to how technology, and then you see that in the Orthodox community with like the invention of the slow cooker, which was literally invented for Cholent for Shabbat. Oh, wow. so, so that Jews who kept Shabbat wouldn't like, wouldn't risk, they wouldn't have to leave their oven on. They didn't have to burn down their house. They could just have something plugged in that stayed on and would keep their food warm into the Shabbos. I didn't know so that. So that's the invention of the slow cooker. I only um, knew that because I did a deep dive into Cholent after we <laughs> we spoke about Cholent on our first podcast ever, and I did not know what it was, but it turns out I did know what it was. I just called it that meat dish. Like, I just didn't know it was called Cholent. I didn't grow up with Cholent. I, I, I had no idea what it was until an adult. Isn't that hilarious? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize that I did know what it was, but regardless, I'm a slow cooker stan. I'm making beef stew tomorrow night. We'll see how it how it comes out. <laughs> and on the other end, you have so many stews and especially Persian stews that hit my mother-in-law's generation. They all use pressure cookers because then they get to do it so much faster. Yeah. And and this is, these are all examples. And it continues to be this like exploration of like, how do you do the same thing, keep the integrity and make it work for you? And I think that can be on any level, your relationship to Jewish food, just because you brought up like your first episode, I was going through when you asked me to be on, I like obviously listened to a bunch of episodes and I had to send a message to Elliot Glazer to chat about. <laughs> and we we discussed about the concept of bar and bat mitzvahs and those little pods where they would have the fan blowing the money and you'd have to cash <laughs> yeah. the money to create it for prizes. And how I never, I hadn't thought about it since until that day when I listened to the podcast and realized like, what a disservice we are doing to our youth. <laughs> Not and, great, and, right? Like, and can you, and I said, like, can you only imagine what Gentiles think when they come to bar mitzvahs <laughs> and see these children, like, grabbing at money? Not a good luck. Not a good luck. And you grew up on Long Island, so I'm sure you saw the most extravagant, ridiculous bar and bat mitzvahs that have ever existed. So I cannot <laughs> even imagine. I do want to ask, what do you have a favorite dish to cook? And do you have a favorite dish of yours to eat? Yes. So I'm very big into just very, I'm very deli forward. So I love, love, love to eat, love matzo ball soup. 
I think matzo ball soup is the cure-all. We lived, which is funny because I said it, I, I posted my stories and the owner of Cats is, kind of dragged me in, in DMs because I was hyping up this other Jewish deli, Sarge's in Murray Hill. Mm-hmm. And I used to live around the corner. And every week we would go for a soup and sandwich combo to get matzo ball soup and pastrami on rye. Cass's does is better pastrami, I will say that. But the matzo ball soup at Sarge's is so good. I think it's better than Second Avenue. I was just going to ask about Second Avenue. Second it's, Avenue. It's cheaper. Mm-hmm. I, love, I love Second okay. Avenue. Love Second Avenue. But it's a little pricey. A little pricey yeah. for a quart. Not gone. Um, and Sarge's, if you go in, if you order it, it's just as expensive. But if you go in, you get this giant bowl of soup. And then you could ask to add carrots, which I, you need carrots. I think if you don't put in carrots, like that's... That's who, who, what are you doing? And then to make, I will say like very, very, very big on just like roast chicken. Like I think schmaltz is inherently the, one of the quintessential Jewish flavorings. Mm -hmm. And I do just a lot of roasted vegetables and you throw a chicken on top. So all the chicken fat like covers the vegetables. And that's like my Shabbat go-to. I have a question. This is maybe controversial. Do you and JC, I want to know the answer from you too. Do you guys put noodles in your matzo ball soup? Yes, of course. Okay. JC? I, I could take it or leave it. Okay. I think, for me, the heart of the soup is the broth. Mm-hmm. And then yes. whatever else is in it is fine with me. Mm-hmm. But as long as there's, like, a very solid broth, I am very happy with the soup. You need shreds of chicken. Shred- you, yes. Need, yes. you need vegetables. I So the thing is, the noodles. Yes, the only exception is Passover which is when most right. people eat matzo ball soup. Right. So if you, were, if, if you were just having matzo ball soup because you need it, then yes, noodles. In Passover, no noodles, mm. but that's why you need the big chunks of vegetables and chicken. There you go. Mm. Bagels. Let's talk bagels because you brought it up. I want to know your take on the Montreal bagel, and I want to know your favorite New York City bagel. What is a Montreal bagel? So they're smaller. Okay. They are sweeter. Ooh. And yeah. They're good. And they're good. I am a New Yorker, born and raised. I think New York bagels are better. Um, and that's just it. I love I love Montreal. I think Black Sea does, makes some great Montreal-style yes. bagels in the city. I, again, dating myself back to when I lived in, in Murray Hill, as every Jewish person straight out of college does, <laughs> lived around the corner from Bagel Boss. And I, was, I grew up I with Bagel it. Boss in Queens. And it is, I think, my fav- some of my favorite bagels and I love their bagel sandwiches, and I love that. I will say, there is this place. I don't know if there's more than one. I don't know where it came from, but I live in Long Island City now, and there's this bagel shop called We Bagel, and it's, I mean, it's Israeli-owned, and it's the best bagels I've ever had. Like, we go we go pretty much every weekend to stock up on some, and then, I mean, I am now at this place where I've inherited so many traits from my mom. You, you grow up, and you realize that you turn into your parents. Yeah, <laughs> and better it used or worse. to be, like, where I was like, why Why the hell would she go around to all these places? Like, just go one place and get everything. Like, what the what the hell? What are you doing? Like, make, wasting your time. And I was like, all right, great. Well, I go to Wee Bagel to get the bagels. <laughs> I need to go to Acme to get the fish if I don't have yes, time to go to if Acme. I'm Russ, if it's, if it's Russ and, and Daughters is, is within the vicinity of where I'm going, great. I'll go to Russ and Daughters. No Russ and Daughters, great. I'll go to Acme because it's, um, I'm in, it's right across in Greenpoint. So it's like, all right, and then I'll go to this place for the schmear, and it becomes this to-do of things just to make one bagel. But then it's I like the it. best and bagel ever. It's so worth it. It is. It is worth it. It is worth I'm it. dying for a bagel right now. Would you believe that you cannot 
find a good whitefish salad in Los Angeles. And if you know of a place or can tell me otherwise, like, let me know. I I, I know nothing about LA and have no real interest in knowing anything hey, about LA. Me too. <laughs> let me tell you. Uh, I will say I do have one of the controversial bagel pairings where I am a very, very devout fan of tuna on cinnamon raisin. What? I think tuna fish on a cinnamon raisin bagel is one of the most delicious things ever, ever. I'm not opposed. I mean, people put raisins directly into exactly, their tuna salad. Exactly, exactly. That's the if I, I'm like it's interested nice. in trying that. If I never oh, ate yeah. another raisin again in my life, I would be happy. <gasps> They're just not doing anything for raisins me. Raisins are a very Jewish. They're a very raisins. Jewish thing. And on every like noodle kugel that I was served, like a sweet one, there would be a pile of raisins that I had picked out next to it. Yes. And I kept being like, mom, oh. just make it without <laughs> the raisins. But everyone else liked them. So what are you going to do? I respect everyone. That's preferences. like a very offensive statement. I fucking love raisins. I just bought a <laughs> massive bag of raisins from Trader Joe's. And my boyfriend was like, what are you going to do with those? And I was like, snack? Yeah. I don't know. Shut yeah. up. Gentiles. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Is there any food that you don't like to cook at all or anything you refuse to make? Not refuse. I will say that I am not, and it's funny because I'm, it's I, like I say, I'm not kosher, but I'm also not a huge fan of shellfish. Mm. I love fish. I think there are, like, I love scallops and I'll occasionally make scallops. Um, I'll eat if I'm at a, like a nice restaurant and they make it well. Great. I mean, I think the lobster is overrated and I'm very into lobster. That's fair. Um, I mean, I could fuck with a crab cake once in a while, but, but in general, I'll, I'll say like, that's, that's the one thing in which I overlap with old school Judaism. Yeah. Listen, I don't eat shrimp and I'm obviously, I don't keep kosher whatsoever. I just think that the bottom feeder shrimp thing like grosses me out a little bit. So I'm, I'm completely with you on that. I, what I did want to ask you or both Jason and I were curious, do you also have a sensitive Jewish stomach? Oh, of course. <laughs> I mean, it's like so funny. Um, I mean, we joke about this all the time. My husband and I and my sister, every, I, we all are, are, we all have wheat Jewish stomachs. Yeah. We try to limit dairy mm -hmm. naturally. I will say like, I do, I do the non-dairy milks, but I still do like cheese and yogurt and, and those things in, and just deal with it. <laughs> um, and ice cream, lots of ice cream. But uh, the number one thing that we have kind of adapted into our life is we're, we're Cali sober. We don't drink alcohol. Oh. Um, and that's been, I would say like, that's been the most incredible thing for us is that we just, no alcohol, we're always good. The second we have like one drink, it's gone. Yeah. That's really smart because I feel like wine specifically is one of those things that people know that it's going to upset their stomach, but they just can't live without it. So they get rid of everything else instead. So I think that's very wise of you. I do the exact opposite. <laughs> I'm not giving up dairy. I'm not giving up <laughs> gluten, not giving up any of that stuff. I'll give up alcohol in a second for sweets. I, I would that. give up. I would give up alcohol in a second if I could eat every single food. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I try to do non-dairy, but I do like dairy on the weekends, which yeah, completely yeah, makes course. no sense because on Monday I feel horrible every single Monday, like catch me <laughs> on the toilet. But um, <laughs> but yeah, alcohol, I don't even drink that much. So, And I'm allergic to red wine. So I am too. I might be a Jewish thing. Yeah. Maybe not. I don't know. That is, no, it, I mean, it's, it's very common with Mizrahi Jews. I'm sure it's common with Ashkenazi Jews too. Either way, it's like there is the amount of like N acids that we have. We have like all of our 
things. Soda, my, my go-to, and that's the like when I go out or when I'm at like parties and things like that is soda and bitters mm-hmm. because A, it's good for your stomach and B, it looks then like you're drinking a cocktail so people don't bother right, you. Yeah. Which is always like people like, mm, why aren't you drinking? drinking? Why aren't you drinking? <laughs> so annoying. It's like I'm, I smoked a blunt on your balcony. And <laughs> I'm, I'm like, <laughs> leave me alone. <laughs> You'll deal with that later. Um, well, this was so fun. Jess, did you have, did I cut you off? No, I feel I like we've covered off. so much. And I've once again learned so much from you. And I'm starving. I just ate, but I'm still <laughs> like, I need to eat again. It's been like an hour. <laughs> Thank you so much for chatting with us and sharing your story and your expertise. I don't know when this goes live, but the book comes out March 9th. It's called Jew-ish. And we literally just finished everything. And like, it's going to printer and like the last minute kind of approvals and endorsements of like the quotes on the back. And I literally was just like bawling tears because I got these quotes from these very big Jewish names. And it, it was just like, it's all happening. So very excited for that. I guess the other thing that I always love to plug is I'm on the board of directors for One Table, which is the most incredible nonprofit in the world. It is, I got just exposed to them and they're all about just helping millennials explore the ancient tradition of Shabbat and making it for themselves. And it is like the one-stop shop where you go and you can get all the resources you need. It's not prescriptive. You get to make it your own. That means that you can say the prayers if you want. That means you can just do these beautiful meditations or quotes that are representative of what's the meaning behind all of these traditions that we do for Shabbat. And on top of it, they'll help pay for your groceries. So that's like... It's incredible. Amazing. Um, and just a really important, important organization in this world where you have this growing group of secular Jews that are just indifferent about Judaism and not understanding these beautiful, beautiful, beautiful traditions that we've inherited that are truly self-care at their core. I've, (laughs) I have you, or I've done one table a couple of times and I went to one of their dinners at Headley and Bennett in like Yes. Oh my God. I'm so jealous about that one. It was so cool. It was like amazing to be around all of these I don't know that everyone there was Jewish, but a lot of like Jewish people who I didn't know for once in LA and try all these different (laughs) foods. And it was like such an amazing event. I can't wait till we can go back to like socializing with strangers again and sharing food. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was the craziest part because I started and with one table, I started doing these 10 person Shabbats and then for the like holidays or actually it started. And that was one of the big things when I started writing about food was right after the Pittsburgh shooting, which we're actually recording on the anniversary because it happened two years ago today. today yeah. And they called for solidarity Shabbats across the country as just these opportunities to really gather and not necessarily mourn, but but just really celebrate Jewish ritual and and, and celebrate it openly at a time in, w- in which uh, exposure to Judaism as a whole was so important. Um, and I pretty much just invited everyone. I posted on my Instagram, anyone who wanted to come, and I ended up hosting like 75 people wow. in the lounge of my building, cooked all the food. And that was the first one. And that's kind of kicked off. Then the last few years, I did these huge Hanukkah parties, both over 100 people. And it, I mean, which is like a nightmare for me because I'm like literally frying latkes for everyone. But it, it was just truly, truly, truly amazing. And I think One Table is a wonderful like first stop to um, start to explore what that can mean if you're like, I'm Jewish, but... I don't necessarily want to 
do real Jewish things, but definitely want to explore my identity further. That's the perfect thing. And then from there, obviously buy my book and go to fucking town. (laughs) Thanks for joining us, Jake. You can find Jake on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Jake Cohen. Definitely be on the lookout for his new book, Jewish Cookbook, Reinvented Recipes from a Modern Mensch, which comes out in March of 2021. If you're a fan of our show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, listen for free on Spotify, Stitcher, truly wherever you get podcasts, we're there. And don't forget to rate and review us. Follow us on Insta at PrayForUsPod. And if you feel like it, you can send us a note at PrayForUsPod at gmail.com. Shabbat shalom. This podcast has been mastered and mixed by the one and only Josh Fisher. Yay, Josh. We love you, Josh. <laughs>